So we come to the second section of this book, which is called The Terrain. So the first part was called uh, <coughs> Seeds, Names and Symbols. So it, it carries the same sort of um, uh, theme, uh, Seeds, and then the Terrain. And then the last section is called Cultivation and Fruition. <coughs> so this is describing the sort of landscape. And uh, the first section was talking about definitions of uh, Nibbana or um, the different words referring to the... Um, uh, the unconditioned reality and the experience of it. And so then this section, these next ten chapters, uh, then refer to the many and various different uh, ways that the, the uh, Buddha uh, in his teachings explained uh, those different aspects and uh, uh, different ways of practicing and developing uh, the um, realization of Nibbana and um, different ways of, of approaching that. So... This um, first chapter in this section is called This and That and Other Things. Perhaps a good place to start contemplating the nature of Nibbana is in the more mundane realm of things, since, just as the Buddha opened his expression of the Four, of the four Noble Truths with the common and tangible experience of dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, it will be most helpful to begin this investigation within the realm of the familiar and then to work towards the more subtle and abstruse from there. There are, of course, many ways to look at the world of things. Most people tend to frame the experiential domain in terms of things such as nice, nasty, mine, yours, exists, doesn't exist, etc., etc. But for the purposes of this exploration, we'll confine our ways of looking at things to two principal ones. A. The study of how things are related to each other. And B. The consideration of, how, of things in terms of a subject-object relationship. So in terms of, of things, so how this book is related to that, that clock, or how this table is related to Venerable Balado, the, the random object. <laughs> So how things uh, are related to each other, and then the other aspect of the the subject or the experiencer and the um, the, the uh, field of perceptions, things that are in the object realm. The Buddha, as well as the meditation masters who have followed his path, spoke extensively on both approaches. The principal reason being that by developing an understanding of the nature of conditionality. As it manifests in both these modes, it becomes possible to see that there is a means and an opening to escape from conditionality. So by understanding how one thing affects another um, and um, seeing how that those cause and effect relationships work in, in, within our experience, then that through that understanding there becomes an apparent a, 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 a way of transcending that quality of conditionality. So... Uh, this is one of the great, uh, in a way, the, the, the greatest miracle of the Buddha's teaching is that through skillful means of speech, of, um, of practice, of, uh, of uh, say, working with the body and the mind, with the conditions of, uh, of, our, of our life, uh, through understanding and working with the conditioned, the mind is enabled to awaken to the unconditioned, which is a, a, a marvelous and miraculous thing. So it's rather like... Uh, developing a, or a, a dream which helps to wake up the dreamers. Yeah. <coughs> one way of one way of putting it. So that it's a uh, um, uh, it is interesting in that respect. The Buddha talked about two kinds of psychic power, or two kinds of magical power. He said there's a first kind of uh, of magical power, or two um, or of miracles. So the first kind is the um, the kind of um, uh, psychic powers like reading people's minds or flying through the air or uh, seeing into past lives and so on. There's that kind of, um, of miracle. And the other kind of miracle is the miracle of instruction. So that by uh, as a, uh, speaking and uh, using ordinary conditioned language, then uh, the mind can be uh, caused to awaken to the, to the unconditioned and be completely liberated. So... The Buddha said that of the two, these two kinds of miracle, the miracle of instruction is the superior. So 
hearing the Dhamma and uh, and uh, experiencing insight, liberation, is from the Buddha's point of view, that's that's a more impressive miracle than flying through the air or reading people's minds or or looking into past lives and such like. The Eightfold Path described by the Buddha is exactly this means. However, on this point, people often find a paradox. If the goal, Nibbāna, is by by definition uncaused, how can a path of practice, which is causal by nature, bring it about? In the Melinda Panha, the questions of King Melinda, the monk Nagasena replies to this question with an analogy. He says, the path of practice doesn't cause Nibbāna, it simply takes you there. Just as the road to a mountain doesn't cause the mountain to come into being, it simply leads you to where it already is. So that also talks about the, um, how the uh, speech or, or the, the uh, practicalities of, of um, Dhamma practice, mindfulness of breathing, walking meditation, and so on, keeping the precepts, which are sort of conditioned activities, can lead to the realization of the unconditioned. To begin this exploration of causality, and thus approach the mountain, quote-unquote, let's look at some commentaries made by contemporary Buddhist teachers. So this first uh, passage is from a Dhamma talk by Venerable uh, Arjun Buddha Dasa. It's from an unpublished Dhamma talk of his that was given in 1988. So I had the opportunity to spend a couple of weeks at Suan Mok Monastery, just after my 10th reigns um, here at, um, uh, in England. And I had a chance to go to Thailand, and I spent a, a couple of weeks at um, Watsuanmok, and uh, I believe I was given a, a copy of this transcript at that time. It was in late 88 that I was there, early 89. And um, so Ajahn Santikaro, who was the translator for Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, passed this on to me. And uh, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, he was... Um, like many teachers, he would take a particular theme and, and speak over and over and over on that for a, a few years and sort of develop it in, in various ways, shapes and forms. And so for a number of years, idapachayata, or conditionality, was the, um, uh, the, the main theme that he used to teach from. And there's um, uh, at least one of his books, if not several books of his, on that theme. Idapachayata, or conditionality, is the natural law, the natural truth that everything depends on causes and conditions. In all the things that are not self, in all naturally changing things, the change always changes according to causes and conditions. Iddapachayata is the fact that with this as cause, this exists. With this as condition, this exists. The existence of anything and the change of that existence is always dependent on causes and conditions. Take away the conditions, and this will no longer exist. We use the word iddapachayata to apply to everything, the entire universe, both physical and mental. But when we speak solely about living things, especially the consciousness of living things, we speak in a more specific way. We talk of paticca sambupada, dependent co-origination. Due to these and these and these and these and these conditions, dukkha arises. We also speak of paticca niroda, dependent quenching. Through the quenching, the ending of this condition, which depends on the quenching of this condition, dukkha is quenched, dukkha ends. The understanding of idapachayata, conditionality, and paticca samupada, dependent co-origination, is crucial in understanding the mind, how suffering is concocted, and how suffering is eliminated. That's a very helpful and clear little explanation about how um, conditionality uh, is to be understood. And the word idapajayata, ida means means this. Uh, so like in the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the turning of the, the wheel of Dhamma, uh, there's that phrase idang dukang, this is dukkha. So ida, uh, ida means this. And uh, so pachayata means um, conditioned, so that, or uh, affected by, so uh, something which is um, this condition. And uh, Ajahn Tanisro translates it as this, that conditionality, this virgule, that conditionality. 
And it just so happens that he is the next um, uh, author that we'll quote from. So this uh, next passage, which is quite extensive and a little hard to follow, but um, it's uh, all good stuff, is from his book, The Wings to Awakening. Uh, and this is um, from one of, his, it's one of his early Dhamma books. And it's from early on in that, uh, that book to, uh, talking about the, the fabric of the Buddha's teaching. The Buddha expressed this, that conditionality, iddhapachayata, in a simple-looking formula. One, when this is, that is. Two, from the arising of this comes the arising of that. Three, when this isn't, that isn't. And four, from the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. That's from the uh, Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Tens. There are many possible, and this is Ajahn Tanisro speaking, there are many possible ways of interpreting this formula, but only one does justice both to the way the formula is worded and to the complex, fluid manner in which specific examples of causal relationships are described in the canon. That way is to view the formula as the interplay of two causal principles, one linear and the other synchronic. So linear meaning sort of succeeding each other in time, and the other synchronic, meaning happening at the same time. <clears throat> One linear and the other synchronic, that combine to form non-linear pattern. Sorry, that combine to form a non-linear pattern. The linear principle, taking uh, lines two and four as a pair, connecting, connects events rather than objects over time. The synchronic principle, that's sentence one and three, connects objects and events in the present moment. So <coughs> that, uh, so two and four, just to remind you, uh, would be from the arising of this comes the arising of that. From the stopping of this comes the stopping of that. And then putting one and three together, when this is, that is. When this isn't, that isn't. The two principles intersect so that any given event is influenced by two sets of conditions, input acting from the past and input acting from the present. Although each principle seems simple, the fact that they interact makes their consequences very complex. To begin with, every act has repercussions in the present moment, together with reverberations extending into the future. Depending on the intensity of the act, these reverberations can last for a very short or a very long time. Thus, every event takes place in a context determined by the combined effects of past events coming from a wide range in time, together with the effects of present acts. These effects can intensify one another, can coexist with little interaction, or can cancel one another out. Thus, even though it's possible to predict that a certain type of act will tend to give a certain type of result, for example, acting on anger will lead to pain, there is no way to predict when or where that result will make itself felt. <coughs> and that, uh, that principle is, is spelled out very um, thoroughly in the, um, uh, the middle-length discourses, the Majjhima Nikaya in the um, <coughs> Sutta number 136, which is... Um, uh, the one of, uh, is either the greater or the lesser exposition on action, either the Maha or the Chula Kamavibhanga Sutta. I can't remember off the top of my head which one. But it talks about how um, that even though a certain act, like a kind act or a, or a harmful act, will tend to have a particular result, you can't predict, you can't define exactly when, where and how the result of that action will, will ripen. And it starts off with the, the, sort of the ancient conundrum of wider... Um, bad things happen to good people or, or why do bad people uh, do bad things and, and don't seem to have any negative result from it and so the, the Buddha talks about this the, uh, the complexity of the ripening of, of action the complexity of the system is further enhanced by the fact that both causal principles meet at the mind through its views and intentions the mind takes a causal role in keeping both principles in action 
Through its sensory powers, it's affected by the results of the causes it has set in motion. This creates the possibility for the causal principles to feed back into themselves as the mind reacts to the results of its own actions. These reactions can take the form of positive feedback loops, intensifying the original input and its results, much like the howl in a speaker placed next to the microphone feeding into it. They can also create negative feedback loops, counteracting the original input, much like the action of a thermostat that turns off a heater when the temperature in a room is too high, and turns it on again when it gets too low. Because the results of actions can be immediate, and the mind can then react to them immediately, these feedback loops, feed, feedback loops can at times quickly spin out of control. At other times, they may act as skillful checks on one's behavior. For example, a man may act out of anger, which gives him an immediate sense of dis-ease, to which he may react with further anger, thus creating a snowballing effect. On the other hand, he may come to understand that the anger is causing his disease, and so immediately does what he can to stop it. However, there can also be times when the results of his past actions may obscure the dis-ease he is causing himself in the present, so that he does not immediately react to it one way or another. In this way, the combination of two causal principles, influences from the past, interacting with those in the immediate present, accounts for the complexity of causal relationships as they function on the level of immediate experience. However, the combination of the two principles also opens the possibility for finding a systematic way to break the causal web. So this is the good news. If uh, causes and effects were entirely linear, the cosmos would be totally deterministic. Like A causes B, B causes C, C causes D, and that's the, the, only, the only input. <clears throat> the cosmos would be totally deterministic, and nothing could be done to escape the machinations of the causal process. If they were entirely synchronic, there would be no relationship from one moment to the next, and all events would be arbitrary. The web could break down totally or reform spontaneously for no reason at all. However, with the two modes working together, one can learn from causal patterns observed from the past and apply one's insight to disentangling the same causal patterns acting in the present. If one's insights are true, one can then gain freedom from those patterns. For this reason, the principle of this-that conditionality provides an ideal foundation both theoretical and practical, for a doctrine of release. And as a teacher, the Buddha took full advantage of its implications, using it in such a way that it accounts not only for the presentation and content of his teachings, so that using of causality, this leads to this, this leads to this, this leads to this, in many of the Buddha's teachings, so how um, things work in causal relationships to each other, <clears throat> that it accounts not only for the presentation and content of his teachings, but also for their organization, their function, and their utility. So not only how the, the teachings are phrased, but also how they, uh, how they work um, in, in practice and how they're applied. It even accounts for the need for the teachings and for the fact that the Buddha was able to teach them in the first place. So Ajahn Tanisaro packs a lot into <laughs> this, uh, this uh, passage, and uh, I fully admit that um, when I first came across this, I had to read it three or four times, at least, to, to really digest it. But, um, and I was uh, going over this same area with the um, reading to the, the um, uh, Anagarika's novices the other day. Uh, it does, uh, uh, even though it can seem a bit dense and a bit uh, hard to, to penetrate, it is a very uh, useful presentation and I feel that he's he's not just trying to blind us with how brilliant he is but rather it's it's actually uh, a, a practical way of, of speaking about how um, liberation is possible and that uh, and that this uh, analysis of his about this simple formula is quite is really quite uh, uh, quite brilliant and and uh, and helpful and so that that sense of of seeing how things affect each other in the present moment and how things affect each other across time is, uh, uh, is very um, say central to, uh, to the way that one can 
both practice Dhamma and use the, the, the practice to awaken. So then this is uh, my commentary on it. Examples of these two types of relationship would also be A. For the linear principle that connects events rather than objects over time. If someone sends you a welcome gift, the next time you see them, you immediately feel grateful and friendly towards them. So that's connected over time. Someone gives you a gift, you appreciate that, that gift, and when you see them, you say, oh, thank you so much, that was so kind of you. So that's related over time. <clears throat> B, for the synchronic principle that connects objects and events in the present moment, when sunlight falls on our body, a shadow forms simultaneously. So that that's uh, because of the... Uh, here we are, the, the light is shining down on the table, therefore the, the shadow uh, forms. If the light, the light, uh, that light is switched off, then the, the shadow disappears. The following passages outline the Buddha's definitions of dependent origination, specific conditionality, and the relationship between them. So before going on to that, also, um, uh, the um, one, another way of, of looking at the this relationship of, of causes and effects and how to work with our own experience. Uh, and I would, I would recommend that uh, either reading it from this book or looking at um, Wings to Awakening, and sort of, uh, it is helpful to go over that, that piece about Idapachayata and, and uh, get a sense of, oh, right, because there's a lot packed in there. There's about five or six, maybe seven or eight different principles that he's outlining in, in that. So it's, it's helpful to go through it bit by bit and, and um, clarify what he's saying. But uh, <clears throat> uh, another way of, of uh, approaching it is to see that um, our, our practice is essentially, uh, it functions in, in two parts. One, part one is, is receiving the results of past actions and past experiences. So something has been caused in the past, like you've decided to come to the um, six o'clock reading that cause has already happened. You are here, so you can't undo that cause. It's already happened, <laughs> right? So that uh, the uh, we receive the results of past events, past experiences, past causes. So that that arrives. So the in terms of the practice, you can't undo the the things that have been caused. You can't change the co- the cause. You can't change the intention behind the cause. You can might you can maybe sort of reinterpret it, but it it, it happened for a, a variety of reasons. That choice to come along to this reading, it was form, and the result is that we're we're here. And so uh, I chose to give readings from the island. You know, that that's also you know, a choice that was made. So you can't undo past causes, um, but the attitude with which those the the effects of those causes is a, a personal choice here in the present moment. Right? How we receive the effects of those causes. You can't change the cause, but uh, <clears throat> our practice, or what we can do with, our, with this mind in this moment, is how does the mind receive the effects of those causes? Okay? Having chosen to come along to this, this reading, and, uh, and uh, say hearing these words, and being gathered together in this, this place, what does the mind do with this now? How does it receive it? How does it uh, hold it? How does it, it, it work with it? Uh, is the mind paying attention? Is it trying to follow the, the, the language? Is it off planning um, <coughs> you know, your holiday next month? Uh, wh- what, what's the mind doing? Is it feeling confused? Is it feeling inspired? Is it feeling sort of a mixture of, of, of other things? What's happening? So uh, where uh, we can practice and have the effect is what the, uh, what's the attitude of the mind towards those uh, the effects of those past causes you can't undo the causes but we uh, we can um, have a direct impact on how they are received the attitude so then <clears throat> so that's part one <laughs> part two then is uh, having received the uh, the effects of those past causes we then uh, take action in the present moment. We make choices of what do, we, uh, what do we do. Do we get up and walk out? Do we start taking notes? Do, uh, w- w- uh, what, does the, what does the mind do with, uh, with the present experience? So 
uh, <clears throat> the the attitude of loving kindness or, or acceptance is, is is very is essential in terms of that receiving the effects of past causes, and similarly establishing fresh causes in the present moment. The choices we make now, the the uh, <clears throat> the the having. Uh, receive the, the, the effects of past causes, having decided, okay, I'm coming along to the reading, I'm hearing these words, okay, this tells me I must go and have a look at that book, or like, this is totally beyond me, I'm, I'm going to check out for this one and join it again, get back on, the, <laughs> get back on board when it's something I can understand. So <clears throat> what the, uh, the mind then does in the present, we, can, we plant causes in the present that then will ripen in the future. So that then, uh, uh, in terms of our, our practice and having learnt from the past or having re- received the results of those past actions, that informs the relationship to the, the, the present experience and then uh, helps the wholesome causes help uh, in terms of thought and action, speech, to be planted in the present that will then somehow ripen in the, in the future. So that even if we've um, created very negative um, causes in the past and we experience the results of, of those painful actions like being uh, angry with someone or being self-righteous or conceited and then feeling that, oh, that was really, I was really inflated or proud or that was really cruel what I said. <clears throat> okay, that's a, receiving the results of that action, that's painful, but having re- received that, that painfulness, how does that inform the choices that I make now? Does it does it make, does it uh, give rise to the sense of oh, I should go and apologize to that person, or uh, I need to uh, be? It makes me feel I need to be more attentive to my speech, or um, it may, maybe uh, uh, it wasn't a, 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 um, a negative uh, a cause, just that come, choosing to come along to these readings. Say, okay, I really have to make sure that my schedule is open, so I can always come along at six o'clock on the, for the the readings and be present. Uh, have to uh, say, make sure that I, I pay attention to that because I get so distracted and my, my calendar gets filled up and get busy with other things. So, so that uh, <clears throat> when we, we, uh, are, we can't control what's going to happen in the future, but what we, again, what we can do in the present is we can plant wholesome seeds. We can plant the causes that will be as, as wholesome, beneficial uh, as possible, and, and then they will ripen as they, as they can. So um, it's a, a slightly easier or more tangible way of, of say, relating to this, this uh, structure that uh, Ajahn Tanisro is speaking about. But effectively, it's the, the same thing that uh, I would say that it, you're, you're recognizing that the mind can make choices in the present moment, and uh, and the mind can sustain uh, has a uh, has a, a capacity to sustain an attitude, different kinds of attitude in the present. And that those those make a difference, the attitude that we have to our felt experience, and the the choices that the mind makes and the direction it gives. That that is how we can practice in the present moment, both receiving the past and and uh, conditioning the the future. So pause for our breath and. Any, uh, please, any uh, questions or thoughts, reflections? Yes. go back in time <laughs> you you can't go back in time what well, you can recognize okay something has a very powerful influence like my choice to become a buddhist monk you know, that's had a, a powerful influence um, 
So, <clears throat> so are the experience the, the effects of that uh, are witnessed and experienced now. If there's some uh, some event has been experienced, sometimes it's a choice that we've made. Sometimes it's something that happened to us. You know that you were in a train crash or something that was uh, traumatic. Or, uh, or like we, using that, uh, I think we were talking the other day, uh, having the example of, say, you got a, uh, an illness when you were very young and got sent off to hospital so that you were separated from your parents for several months when you were tiny. Uh, <coughs> so that, that um, you can't undo that. You can't say the train wreck didn't happen or that, or that you didn't get the diphtheria or whatever it was. But rather, <coughs> you can recognize, oh, that has a powerful effect on my mind. The train crash is is there, or maybe you have a physical injury. You know, you you are <coughs> scarred or, or disabled because of some kind of illness or disease or whatever <coughs> um, accident. So you can't undo that cause, but you can recognize. Well, this has a powerful effect on on the way that I see the world. It has a powerful effect on my body, on the the the, the uh, uh, on the way that life is is. Um, they received the patterns that it takes, but that doesn't have to be an obstruction. So you, you cater for it. You, you, you recognize, okay, that, that has a powerful effect, so let's take that into account. Let's not overlook that. There's no point wishing it wasn't there, because it's there. Like I, I have a, 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 a slightly lame right foot because of a, I put a machete into it in my uh, first week in the monastery in Thailand. <laughs> so... Usually it's only osteopaths and chiropractors who notice, but I, I have a slight limp, and I lean to the right because my my body's twisted because my 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 right leg is slightly weak. My right shoe wears out at half the speed of my left shoe. So, just in case you're interested, <laughs> <laughs> so I I am aware of that. Like I see a photograph of myself, and I'm standing up, and I I I'm leaning about five degrees to the right. Even when I feel like I'm standing up straight, my body's actually tilted because my right leg is weak. I can't undo that, that stroke of the machete that put a hole in my foot. But I can recognize, okay, I need to <laughs> compensate. <laughs> but if I want to be sitting straight, I don't want this, uh, the body to get more out of kilter as time goes by. I need to, to work on that. And I need to remember that when I think I'm sitting straight, I'm actually five degrees to the right. And that if I'm sitting straight, then there's actually a lot more pressure on the left-hand side. That, and so uh, this is a, a living example. So uh, I can't uh, uh, ignore that. Yeah, it's there. But I don't have to make it a problem. It's just the scar or the limp or the, the, the lean. <laughs> and uh, so uh, depending on the, the kind of uh, so event or the choice that we've made or the thing that happened it's always up to us to to have that quality of openness so that like that's why I feel loving kindness um, radical acceptance it can't undo the causes but it can totally accept the way they are you can just say here it is <laughs> this this is it this is the way it is it's exactly like this and uh, and that acceptance then is uh, creates the, the the basis that that kind of loving kindness and and uh, attunement to reality that creates a very very wholesome cause for then skillful choices to be made in the future. Perhaps my reason for asking is because I've done research um, about flashbacks and trauma and. The part of the problem is that the, the thought keeps coming, um, and then there's a suppression or an avoidance because the mind doesn't want to accept the traumatic thought. But once you can help somebody to accept the traumatic thought, it's like the whole the whole string dissolves, and so that doesn't it, it's not being recreated in the mm -hmm. mind, and then in the reality as well. I'm thinking that it's sounding like the same thing. It is. It's the more that you fully accept the results of that event or that illness or that action and just say, well, here it is. And if it's something, you know, a, a foolish choice that we made or something that, that we did, well, 
that was a really stupid thing to have done. And here's the result. <laughs> and so there's a kind of forgiveness. It's a generosity of heart. Like, yeah, we're all, we, we all do stupid things. And that, uh, or that things happen to us because we're, we're born. And we get illnesses or we uh, standing in the way when a you know, car comes off the road. And so that uh, that quality of acceptance in, uh, it helps to reduce the the um, the impact of those negative uh, effects, even if they, those the, the resonances still carry on, the mind doesn't hold it as a problem or something that shouldn't be there or is, or that's that's distressing or as any kind of um, of painful quality. Like someone like Angulimala, you know, that, uh, who was a mass murderer, he had a lot of payback. <laughs> And that uh, it's a bit ambiguous in the sutta, but it sounds like not only did because uh, he you know he killed a lot of people, so all the families and friends of the people he killed were pretty upset. Even though he was a monk, a lot of them were still harassing him and throwing bricks at him and such like. You know, because they're you know he, even though he was a monk, he was he'd been responsible for killing their family and friends. But it sounds like also um, from the uh, from the the sutta that. Not only was it people attacking him and, and knocking him with sticks or throwing stones at him, but like tiles off the, would fall off a roof or branches would drop down from a tree as he's walking underneath. And, <laughs> 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 and that uh, there was just a sort of in, a very, very strong uh, um, kind of karmic resonances that were, were gathered around his, the results of his, as a result of his violent actions. And the Buddha makes this really interesting comment. He said, bear it, Brahmin, bear it. As he sort of come back to the monastery with his head bleeding and his bowl broken and his robe all ripped up. I'm like, oh, that, was, that was a bindabhat, you know. It's not like walking back from Berkhamstead with a, with a cracked bowl and a, your head bleeding. And the, and the Buddha says, bear it, Brahmin, bear it, because you're experiencing the results of actions now that, that would have ripened for many thousands of years, many hundreds of thousands of years in, in the lower realms. So you're getting a, a very mild dose <laughs> of what would be, you would be experiencing if the mind was still attached and, and uh, unidentified with it. Okay, let's uh, carry on. The following passages outline the Buddha's definitions of dependent origination Specific conditionality, idapanchayata, and the relationship between them. And what bhikkhus is dependent origination? With birth as condition, aging and death comes to be. Whether there be an arising of Tathagatas or no arising of Tathagatas, this nature of things still stands. The stableness of the Dhamma, this causal orderliness, the relatedness of this to that, Idapachayata, specific conditionality. And those terms are um, the, this nature of things still stands, Dhamma Tittata, like or it can mean established in Dhamma, established in reality. Uh, this causal orderliness, that's Dhamma Niyamata, the lawfulness, this is like the orderliness of the universe. The, these laws still function. Whether a Buddha appears in the world or not, this is how nature functions, this um, orderliness of the natural law and things are functioning in accordance with, with Dhamma, with reality. A Tathagata awakens to this and breaks through to it. Fully enlightened, fully understanding, he explains it, teaches it, proclaims it, establishes it, discloses it, analyzes it, elucidates it. It's another one of those um, strings of, uh, of related terms. He <clears throat> Fully enlightened, fully understanding, he explains it, teaches it, proclaims it, establishes it, discloses it, analyzes it, elucidates it. And he says, see, with birth as condition because aging and death come to be. And so too with the whole of the twelve links, with becoming as conditioned birth, with clinging as conditioned becoming, with craving as conditioned clinging, with feeling as conditioned craving, with contact as conditioned feeling, with the six sense spheres as conditioned contact, with materiality mentality as conditioned, the six sense spheres. With consciousness as condition, materiality, mentality. With volitional formations as condition, consciousness. With ignorance as condition, volitional formations. Whether there is an arising of Tathagatas or no arising of Tathagatas, 
This nature of things still stands. The stableness of the Dhamma, this causal orderliness, the relatedness of this to that. A Tathagata awakens to this and breaks through to it. Fully enlightened, fully understanding, he explains it, teaches it, proclaims it, establishes it, discloses it, analyzes it, elucidates it. And he says, see, with ignorance is conditioned because volitional formations come to be. Thus because that suchness, tatata, therein, the invariability, the not otherwiseness, the relatedness of this to that, this is called dependent origination. And if you want the Pali words for those, suchness is tatata, invariability is avitatata, and the not otherwiseness, some great words here, it's not, uh, is ananyatata, ananya, so uh, anya is other, ananya is not other, ananyatata, the relatedness of this to that, this is called dependent origination. And what bhikkhus are the dependently arisen phenomena? Aging and death is impermanent, compounded, dependently arisen, subject to withering, that's kind of fading away, vanishing, fading away and cessation. So too are birth, becoming, grasping, craving, feeling, contact, the six sense spheres, materiality, mentality, consciousness, volitional formations and ignorance. These also are impermanent, compounded, dependently arisen, subject to withering, vanishing, fading away and cessation. These bhikkhus are called the dependently arisen phenomena. So that's quite a teaching. That's sutta number 20 in the, uh, uh, the um, section on causation, the connected discourses on causation. So in the, the connected discourses, the Sangyutta Nikaya, there's a whole big chunk, uh, section 12, which is the connected discourses on causation. So many of these teachings in this area come from that uh, section 12, um, uh, and so this is the twentieth sutta of that that group. So these um, are those terms: dhamma, dhamma tittata, established in dhamma. Uh, Tittati means to stand, like to or to be um, uh, based in. And so based in dhamma, and then uh, dhamma niyamata. Niyama is a law, so the following the, the the laws of of reality or the laws of nature. <coughs> so. The, uh, those two, uh, plus Dhammata, uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, who was a very creative teacher, he said, uh, there's not just three characteristics of existence. We talk about anicca, dukkha, anatta, and, uh, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. So you can also see that there are, there are nine dars, and it's a pun also that the, they all end in the word, in the syllable ta, meaning the, the quality of. So... Um, uh, anicca means impermanent. Anicca is impermanence. Uh, dukkha means unsatisfactory. Dukkata means unsatisfactoriness. Anatta is not self. Anatta means not selfness. So all of those end in ta. So then he, so he had anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca, dukkata, anatta as the first three. Then the second three were dhammata. Dhamma niyamata and Dhamma titata. So that they're all conditioned phenomena, mental or physical. They are all uh, <coughs> of, the, um, of the nature of Dhamma. They are established in Dhamma and they follow the laws of Dhamma. And exactly what, uh, the, how those are nuanced in relationship to each other, you can listen to Ajahn D- uh, Buddha Dasa's Dhamma talks. <laughs> but uh, they're uh, the... Um, one way of reflecting on that that uh, that I've used is to consider that the um, the <coughs> dhammata means like uh, of the the substance of of dhamma, or that's the, the forms their their fabric, um, and then uh, dhamma niyama is like the way that they function is according to the 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 uh, the, like the the way that they they operate, and then. Uh, Dhamma titata you can uh, consider to be how they appear or how they manifest. Um, this is just my well, my take on it. So you can say that the water, this fabric, is H two O, hot hydrogen and oxygen, 
two, two hydrogens and an oxygen. That's the fabric. And then the um, function is uh, the, the laws of the, the way water works. It's above room temperature, it's above zero, so it's liquid. If it was below zero, it would be, be ice. If it was above 100 degrees, it would be um, water vapor. So the water functions, that's the, 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 the kind of uh, uh, what uh, governs the, the way that water operates, its viscosity, how fluid it is, and so on. And then <coughs> what it looks like, the, the, the kind of um, uh, the, uh, the appearance and the, the, the kind of texture uh, that water has, you can say, is the manifestation. So this is just my own, uh, one of my ways of re reflecting on those three qualities. So substance, function, and manifestation, as uh, uh, reflecting on dhammata, dhammaniyamata, dhammatitata. But you can invent your own theory as well, if you like. <laughs> but this is the main sutta where those two, dhammaniyamata and uh, uh, dhammatitata, come together. And then the last three tas, if you're interested, Sunyata, uh, emptiness, uh, tatata, suchness, which we just mentioned. So sunyata, emptiness, saying that uh, all things are empty of, of self and what belongs to self. All things are such or thus, that they, um, uh, the, there is this quality of suchness, tatata. And then the, the ninth ta is atamayata, which has its own chapter in this book. And atamayata... Um, literally means not made of that. So if in terms of um, the nature of, of um, all things, you can say that all things are empty, uh, all things are such, and then <coughs> uh, the atamayata uh, is, uh, is to say, well, there aren't really any things <laughs> in the first place. That there's, there's no that really to be empty or to be such, that there's a, that... that there is only uh, the, the Dhamma itself, or that there's that quality of, of um, the breakdown of, of subject and object. But we get to the Atamayata, it gets its own, its own chapter in this, but just for the, the um, uh, mentioning those nine Dhas. And if you look up Ajahn Buddha Dasa's teaching, then he's a number of Dhamma talks where he talks about the, the nine Dhas. Um, and it, but it, it's, it's, in, um, it's uh, interesting to reflect. So, like Sunyata is saying, uh, to the world of things, uh, uh, all things are, are are empty, or they're saying no to the world of things, or Tatata is saying yes to the world of things, and um, uh, and then Atamayata is saying, well, there aren't really any things. <laughs> so another, um, uh, you can also use your own way of reflecting on those, but uh, they are, uh, I say, uh, can be a helpful way of considering the. Um, uh, those particular qualities of experience. <clears throat> so then it goes into uh, the um, uh, expression of dependent origination, and this is again from the Anguttara Nikaya Book of the Tens, that same sutta. And um, so we um, regularly chant this, uh, the dependent origination and dependent cessation, when we're doing the funeral chanting, so that um, this is uh, something that we uh, we recite from time to time, uh, usually when there's a uh, someone who has passed away. So uh, this is from um, Anguttara Book of the Tens, also Sutta Number Forty One in the Nidana Vaga, from this uh, again from the Connected Discourses on Causation. And what is the noble method that is well seen and well penetrated by insight? There is the case where a noble disciple notices. When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes the arising of that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this comes the cessation of that. So this is the same passage that we were reading out earlier, same sutta. In other words, with ignorance as condition, formations come to be. With formations as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, materiality, mentality comes to be. With materiality, mentality as condition, the six sense spheres come to be. With the six sense spheres as condition, contact comes to be. With contact as condition, feeling comes to be. 
With feeling as condition, craving comes to be. With craving as condition, clinging comes to be. With clinging as condition, becoming comes to be. With becoming as condition, birth comes to be. With birth as condition, then old age and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair all come into being. Such is the origination of this entire mass of suffering. Now, with the remainderless fading, cessation or absence of that very ignorance, comes the cessation of formations. With the cessation of formations comes the cessation of consciousness. With the cessation of consciousness comes the cessation of materiality mentality. With the cessation of materiality mentality comes the cessation of six, the six sense spheres. With the cessation of the six sense spheres comes the cessation of contact. With the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. With the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving. With the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging. With the cessation of clinging comes the cessation of becoming. With the cessation of becoming comes the cessation of birth. With the cessation of birth, then old age and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair all cease. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of suffering. This is a noble method that is well seen and well penetrated by insight. It is said in the scriptures that during the weeks immediately following the Buddha's enlightenment, he contemplated this pattern of insight knowledge. It was a pattern that was completely new to him. It describes the essence of both the central spiritual malaise and its solution. This process of dependent origination, outlined so succinctly in this sutta, contains more than enough material within it for a book of its own. And as you'll be aware, there's numerous books that have been written about dependent origination already. However, to remain focused on the topics at hand, we will simply present the text for your own investigation rather than pursuing detailed explanations here. So it's also uh, helpful to consider that what you have in, uh, in dependent origination, dependent cessation, it's a fine analysis of the second noble truth and the third noble truth. So uh, the example I like to give is rather like if you get a, a new... Um, car or a new computer you have a handbook you open the glove compartment there's the okay congratulations you're the owner of a new prius or you bought a new um macbook pro here you are and so when you look at your user's manual often it has the first couple of pages as the sort of the the idiot's guide that this is the here's the on switch yeah (laughs) and you have like a two-page summary of okay the, the really essential stuff that is without, without any frills, exactly you know, all you need to know. And then the next 50 or 100 pages is the detailed spelling out of what all those little settings do and how you can adjust the clock and, and um, how you can uh, uh, fix this and that and, and what all, the, what all the, the dials and numbers really mean. And so <clears throat> the, uh, similarly, the Four Noble Truths, uh, so the Second Noble Truth talks about the, um, the cause of, of dukkha being craving, tanha, um, and then the, uh, that's the, the, the cause of dukkha is uh, self-centered craving. And then the, the cessation of dukkha, dukkha niroda, and so that is the, is the third noble truth, how you know, the dukkha can come to an end. So what you have in the dependent origination is like the, the detail the rest of the user's manual, where you have these simple expressions with the second and third noble truth, the cause of the arising of dukkha, and then the, the, the uh, cessation of it. The, um, these 12 links spell out in, in, fi- in more refined detail how that all works, how dukkha arises and how it ceases. So it's like the, it's the sort of nitty-gritty uh, for the, um, the, the refined aspects of the user's manual that tells you what's actually happening under the bonnet and, and how this thing works and how you can change the settings if you want to. So that's one way I, I like to, to consider it. Also, um, the, uh, this is uh, Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhu Nyanamoli, which is uh, my favorite Dhamma book of all. <coughs> and this is um, from the beginning of the chap- third chapter called After the Enlightenment, and uh, it's describing the um, uh, the Buddha's experience, and also the uh, where 
dependent origination is um, say hatched or, or formed in, in, in this particular pattern. Thus I heard, on one occasion when the Blessed One was newly enlightened, he was living at Uruvela by the banks of the river Niranjara, at the root of the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment. Then the Blessed One sat at the root of the Bodhi tree for seven days in one session, feeling the pleasure of deliverance. At the end of the seven days he emerged from that concentration, and in the first watch of the night his mind was occupied with dependent arising in forward order thus. That comes to be when there is this, that arises with the arising of this. That is to say, it's with ignorance as condition that formations come to be. So through to the whole twelve links. Uh, it says, knowing the meaning of this, the Blessed One uttered this exclamation. When things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahmin, his doubts all vanish, for he knows that each thing has to have its cause. In the second watch of the night, his mind was occupied with dependent arising in reverse order, thus. That does not come to be when there is not this. That ceases with the cessation of this. That is to say, with the cessation of ignorance, there is the cessation of formations. Cessation of formations, cessation of consciousness, and so on. Knowing the meaning of this, the Blessed One then uttered this exclamation. When things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahmin, his doubts all end, for he perceives how the conditions come to, come to end. In the third watch of the night, his mind was occupied with dependent rising in forward and reverse order thus. That comes to be when there is this, that arises with the arising of this. That does not come to be when there is not this, that ceases with the cessation of this. That is to say, it's with ignorance as condition that formations come to be, so for, so um, in exactly the same way, the twelve links arising, and then uh, with the cessation of ignorance there is the cessation of formations, and so too with the twelve links for the, the cessation mode. Knowing the meaning of this, the Blessed One then uttered this exclamation. When things are fully manifest to the ardent meditating Brahmin, there, like the sun who lights up the sky, he stands, repelling Mara's hosts. <clears throat> so then also, it was uh, shortly after that, when he, um, after another seven days, uh, he uh, cast his eye around the world. No, she, uh, he and said um, that... Uh, That was when he, uh, uh, oh no, so it was much later on when he um, had reflected that there was no point trying to teach this because nobody would understand. <laughs> so, but uh, that's a, a, a helpful consideration that uh, having spent uh, so much time and so sort of thoroughly exploring this and investigating and realizing how it all worked, that uh, having fully digested that, then he came to the conclusion, no one's ever going to understand this. So if you're feeling perplexed by dependent origination, like, how does that all work? You know, this is too much. It's too much. My head's going to burst. Like, well, that's why the Buddha thought. That, you know, uh, one of the reasons he thought there's no point even trying. If I if I attempt it, it'll just be wearying and troublesome for me. So I think I'll just uh, abide at ease. And then the Brahma deity Sahampati then appeared before the Buddha and made the request. So uh, one thing to, to, uh, that we'll go into later on is um, that is uh, helpful to consider that the word cessation, um, that one of the most helpful books about dependent origination is written by Bhikkhu Payuto, um, uh, Bhikkhu P.A. Payuto, and there's a, a very helpful little pass, piece in there. He talks about the problem with the word nirodha, P-A-Y-U-T-T-O, Payuto. And... Uh, <coughs> Because the we we tend to think of of niroda or cessation meaning the ending of a thing that has already started, but niroda also means to to restrain or to hold in check, is that to stop something from arising. So when ignorance doesn't come to be, then uh, then the other things don't come to be. So because in so it doesn't just mean it's already begun and then it stops, but it can also mean that it doesn't arise in the first place. Or as a venerable Payuta says, it, um, if there isn't a problem with ignorance, then there isn't a problem with, 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 uh, with formations. If there isn't a problem with formations, then there isn't a problem with consciousness and so on. So that it's quite a broad term. It doesn't just mean the, the stopping of a thing that has started. 
But uh, as he points out, there isn't really a better term in English, and it's been translated as cessation for so long, you kind of almost have to go with it. But it's helpful to, to, to reflect. It's, it's not just um, the, uh, a simple stopping of a, of a thing that has begun, but it's a, also a, 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 um, a way of uh, relating to the, the, the attitude with it. So it's also, when, uh, in terms of, of uh, the translation or the understanding of it, it's um, one of the ways that I like to think about it is that it's rather like with, with this word atamayata, it's uh, uh, what has ceased is the, the, the thingness or the solidity, the kind of, the, the, the specific nature of, Say of a of consciousness or of the mind body duality. It, it's kind of its substantiality has ceased. It's it's a solidity as a, as a thing, as a, my mind, my body, or that perception or this feeling. It's it's uh, what what's ceased is that the that the mind's belief in that that is a real solid, separate, uh, actual thing. That's what it is. It's that thing, and it's and it's real, and it's there, and it's solid. So that then, when the mind relaxes its attitude and says, "Well, there isn't really anything that's that's solid and permanent and absolute there. This is just the the mind's uh, uh, say perception of this this moment. That 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 thingness has ceased. There's still seeing and hearing and smelling, tasting, touching, and thinking going on, but that quality of of um, Solidity that is given to a, an object, the material object, or a thought, or a feeling, an emotion—that that solidity has been let go of. So that's one way of relating to cessation. It's, like, it's not just that, say, the um, the the words have stopped, but recognizing that you know the, uh, the the word has ceased, or or the the sound has ceased, is rather that the mind sees. Well, it's just a, it's just a mental impression. It's uh, it's uh, say. Uh, appearance as a a solid thing, like saying the word "solid thing." <laughs> it seems like a real thing, but the, when the mind recognizes, well, that's just the sound heard by the ear, interpreted by the mind. It's just a pattern of consciousness. There's no real thing there. It's just a, a set of impressions arising in consciousness. That's all it is. That's all it can be. Aha! So it's it's thingness. It's sort of a it's kind of false um, substantiality has has ended. So that's another way of looking at this term cessation. So I think we'll probably need to pause there as that clock keeps moving. <laughs> Speaking of Anicca, so um, yeah, let's uh, let's leave it there for today. Any final questions, reflections? This is a lot of words, and it's, these are quite subtle concepts and qualities. The um, end of origination, it was just a thought that depends on time and space. So it depends on the thought that there's a person here, a past that affects the future, the present, the present may affect the future. But Nibbana is not dependent on that because Nibbana has no form, and form has no Nibbana. So, in the same Zen, they would say Mu, so nothing is. So all of the concepts that we put on dependent origination don't apply to Nibbana because it's transcendent, you know, in the Heart Sutra. Gone beyond, gone, gone, gone beyond mm -hmm. concept. So that, that was one of the differences I thought may occur, that one had time and space, a sense of self and might didn't necessarily have time and space. It was boundless. Well, the, the, the point of the dependent origination teaching is to help that realization of Nibbana to be actualized. That's the point of it. It's, it's like it's saying, it's, it's giving you the detail of why you think you are Nevin. If I do. If you do. <laughs> and why we, we call this Saturday. And we say, it is Saturday. 
you know, that the uh, the the mind designates things into into being, and and it's spelling out how we, the the experiences of dissatisfaction are created by that uh, kind of ignorant identification with perceptions, thoughts, attitudes, and so on. So it's uh, <coughs> when there's no avicca, then the the whole cycle doesn't begin. <laughs> when there's vicha, when there's awareness, then the 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 uh, the felt sense of the, when the when the mind is awake, when there is vicha, then the felt sense of that experience we call nibbana, we call peacefulness. But it's when the the uh, the issue is is that the why and why the Buddha teaches or he did teach was because not all beings recognize that that the the minds of all beings are not completely um, uh, awake and the beings attached to their bodies their personalities their feelings their emotions their attitudes and Sokapari Deva Dukkha Dhammanasa Upayasa, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair ensue. You know, conflict and and uh, division, and so that uh, <coughs> that uh, that being the 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 experience of the majority of beings. That's why Buddhas teach. That's why they're in order to help beings to to wake up to how that how that came to be that we are living in the states of division, separateness, conflict and, and dissatisfaction and spelling out, well this is how it happened <laughs> this is this is how it's come into being and this is uh, and if, the, if this is uh, addressed in, in this and this and this way, then it won't come into being so it's not created, the mind is not created by causing pain it's well if you, if you, yeah, that's what I read out that um about the quotation from Melinda Panha. To read that again. So, um, uh, let's see. The Eightfold Path described, the Buddha, described by the Buddha is exactly the means whereby we use the condition to help awaken to the unconditioned. The Eightfold Path is conditioned. And it helps the mind to awaken to the unconditioned. The Eightfold Path described by the Buddha is exactly this means. However, on this point, people often find a paradox. If the goal, Nibbāna, is by definition uncaused, how can a path of practice, which is causal by nature, bring it about? In the Melinda Panha, the questions of King Melinda, the monk Nagasena replies to this question with his analogy. He says, the path of practice doesn't cause Nibbāna, it simply takes you there. Just as the road to a mountain does not cause the mountain to come into being, it simply leads you to where it already is. Well, like Ajahn Chah would often use the example of groundwater. He said that you don't, the Dhamma is there. You don't create the Dhamma. The Dhamma is not caused or created by our practice. It's like water in the ground. You don't create the water in the ground. If you dig a well, you find the water. If you don't dig a well, you don't find the water. But it's there. If you dig, you find it. If you don't dig, you won't find it. But the, the 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 living being does not create the Dhamma. But they discover that if they dig. And on that note, we can draw things to a close. <laughs>